This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Today, a talk about Crystal Eastman, labor activist, suffragist, pacifist, and rebel journalist. She lived from 1881 to 1928, and she's the subject of a biography that is still under construction. It's much more difficult um, than I had imagined. Going in, I didn't anticipate legwork at this level. And that's Amy. Let me think. Oh, what I wanted to do, I wanted to make sure I don't mispronounce your last name. Can you pronounce your last oh, name for me? Okay, sure. It's Aronson. Okay, well, that's easy enough. Amy Aronson. She teaches at Fordham University, where she's an assistant professor of... Uh, of uh, journalism and media studies, I believe. I, I had this problem the last time I had to give someone my title, but I, I teach journalism. Professor Aronson is researching the life and times of Crystal Eastman, who had a hand in so many progressive movements that tracing her existence has required meticulous reading in many different archives in the U.S. and abroad. You were most recently in Cambridge? Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, the, the Crystal's papers are not collected in any one place. Um, so there has been an enormous amount of legwork involved um, in getting started with it and in pursuing an understanding of her life. It was a life that was marked by both personal and political struggle. Crystal Eastman was a top-of-her-class lawyer at a time when women weren't allowed to vote. She worked her way into the progressive politics scene of New York by way of the labor movement, arguing for better protections for factory workers. From there, she worked for women's suffrage and helped write the constitutional amendment allowing women to vote. She was a pacifist who mediated a major peace plan. She was bullish on free speech, publishing a popular magazine that gave voice to the American left and establishing the framework of the American Civil Liberty Union. She was a feminist and a prolific one, writing up until her death that women must be just as free and equal in the private sphere of their homes as they were in the workplace in the Constitution. If it's possible to collect political causes like so many campaign buttons, Eastman was covered in flair. She was of such controversial opinions and had so many of them that Crystal Eastman was often a stranger in the crowd. She wasn't beholden to any one group. She opted to alienate political allies rather than betray her own sense of moral direction. For Crystal Eastman, it was a sense she began to cultivate as a young girl. Her mother uh, was a, uh, an ordained congregational minister, uh, rather rare uh, in, in those days, a congregational minister in a, within a rather important reformist uh, community. Um, in Elmira, New York, she, her mother uh, and father became co-pastors of the um, rather influential Park Church. And so that's the environment in which Crystal uh, and her siblings were raised. And her mother was uh, rather an extraordinary preacher. You know, for example, uh, her mother uh, was asked to deliver Mark Twain's eulogy. This was Crystal's mother. Crystal adored her mother, was very close to her all of her life, and was sort of uh, raised in that tradition of speaking out, being willing to be a public person uh, in pursuit of what she saw was right. And whether or not that would lead to fame, I think, was not really part of the equation when she was growing up. But, you know, that did provide some of the, some of the building blocks, some of the inspiration to, you know, going on to do the kind of work um, and achieving the kind um, of influence that, that Crystal Eastman did. Crystal Eastman kind of rose to national prominence because of her involvement with the labor movement. She drafted the first workers' compensation law after studying industrial work accidents 
in western Pennsylvania. Yes. Um, Crystal had been uh, working on industrial accidents with the, uh, the Pittsburgh survey, a group of uh, sort of social science studies. At that time in history, every other kind of major industrial country, particularly European countries, already had laws on the books uh, and legislation that uh, protected and compensated families in the case of industrial accidents. The United States was, was really lagging uh, on that, that you know, an industrial accident to the sole breadwinner of a family could absolutely um, uh, wipe out that family, put, put the entire, all of the children, the next generation, and of course the spouse um, into a, a position of absolute destitution. So it was um, not only a kind of a moral or ethical problem in the United States, but also um, uh, an, an economic one and a social one. It became a real visible social problem. Um, and she, uh, the, under the auspices of the Pittsburgh survey, did some of the first research to really catalog what this meant, to really explore um, what this meant to those families and reveal what this meant to those families. In, in really exploring these industrial accidents, um, Crystal Eastman made it possible and indeed wrote a report that uh, argued that, you know, the responsibility for accidents, accidents happen. And that's particularly true in, in the case of an industrializing country, a fast industrializing country. Um, this is simply dangerous work she argued. Um, and so that she felt that and argued for the fact that the um, responsibility for um, these accidents should be shared, shared by the companies and the workers and indeed the consumers who benefited from the products uh, that were produced. Um, and that was her, you know, that was rather a, a breakthrough that she proposed. Um, that was really the, the compromise and the kind of new uh, thinking about industrial accidents that she, uh, that she authored. This um, was later struck down by the Supreme Court, which had a number of uh, precedents really on the book that stuck to the idea of, of, of negligence and that, um, that basically argued that workers and their labor were the property of companies that, ha that employed them. And so that this was uh, an incursion against their uh, employer's right to property. Um, and so it took some years after that, after that Supreme Court decision, um, to, um, you know, for legislation to come up to actually get workers' compensation on the books. But it started, you know, what Crystal wrote and the logic of what Crystal wrote um, and what her work um, promoted uh, ended up being really, you know, laying the groundwork for workers' compensation law that eventually emerged through legislation really in many states um, across the country. In, in what I've read of what you've written about Crystal Eastman so far, um, she, she came to this work uh, with the labor movement. She, she came to that because um, kind of the picture in my head is, you know, she gets out of law school, jobs are scarce. She kind of frantically puts something together where she can work for the Pittsburgh survey um, and then ends up writing this really knockout report, um, gets a great job Can you in New York that, that will put her on a commission to start writing um, uh, workers' compensation law. Can you tell me about that journey of hers where she went from not being a really um, attractive job candidate to having a really sweet gig in New York City? Yes, uh, sure, and it actually was, you know, it was a very sweet gig and one that came, uh, you know, that surprised her a great deal. Some of her letters around that period, you know, she writes to her mother, she writes to her brother that, you know, the book of fame is unrolling for me, you know, this kind of thing. And it, it, um, there was a, you know, a kind of sarcasm and also a kind of, um, you know, shock in, in the tone of those letters that she can't believe this is happening to her. 
Um, she was a very young woman um, at the time. You know, she was just in her 20s, still a very young woman, and it was very unusual for women to be in this kind of position of authority. Crystal Eastman graduated second in her class from NYU Law School. Um, nevertheless, uh, the legal profession uh, in the early 20th century was perhaps um, the, the least welcoming to women of the sort of, you know, top professions. Um, even medicine uh, was more welcoming to women at the time. She pursued uh, employment uh, in, in the legal profession uh, quite actively when she finished school, and she could not find a job. It was because of those barriers that she ended up accepting the job, which she thought would be a, a temporary short-term six-month job is what she originally thought, with the Pittsburgh survey. Um, and, you know, that, of course, changed the, you know, the, the direction of her life. She never did practice law for the rest of her life. Um, but she had experienced a lot of closed doors in terms of the profession that she thought she wanted to pursue and that when she graduated from law school, she was very excited to pursue. When the Pittsburgh survey kind of landed her in a, a position to have such public influence, to be working on such important public uh, issues, to eventually come to chair uh, a commission appointed by the governor, um, she was the only woman on the commission, and she was uh, appointed chair. Um, you know, this came as an enormous surprise to her. Uh, and at first, uh, as I suggested in some of her letters, she, she thought it was a joke. She couldn't believe that she had ended up in this position. But she did, uh, and the position was, as you say, quite kind of a, a sweet gig, an important position uh, in a, a very uh, fancy office suite at the top of, a, a, of an office tower uh, in Manhattan. 1909-1910, uh, she got a fair amount of, of coverage in the mainstream papers, lots of profiles and things started to appear uh, about this um, exciting young professional woman uh, who was having such a great impact on so many of the social issues, important social issues of the day. From working in labor, she then went on to um, be very active in the suffrage movement. She was the campaign manager of the suffrage campaign in Wisconsin in 1912. And I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about that. Um, that experience was very formative for her. Why? That was a very important job uh, for her. She was appointed basically to go to Wisconsin. Wisconsin then was the largest industrial state with a suffrage uh, amendment on the ballot. And the National uh, Party in Washington sent Crystal to be the campaign manager there. At the time, Wisconsin had two very active uh, but somewhat different uh, suffrage organizations that were working uh, in some competition with each other, um, just you know, pursuing things in different ways, although, of course, they were both interested um, in achieving the vote for women uh, in Wisconsin. So Crystal went into a, uh, to an organization where there was significant groundwork uh, done, yet um, a lot of conflict. And a lot of it was, or at least some of it was, generational. There were uh, older women, uh, very established, and then there were some younger women uh, who had a kind of uh, another approach. And Crystal went in and was uh, helping to negotiate and organize the campaign, straddling these two movements. Crystal herself, a very young uh, woman, radical, or what would become later uh, the sort of militant side. You know, she was negotiating um, a very complex um, feminist politics. One of the things that I'm discovering, just in terms of her relationship among the women and within the suffrage movement, is, uh, you know, some of these geographic differences. She was a city girl and a well-educated, professionally educated lawyer, um, and there was a lot of 
pushback in her personal approach. She was, you know, she was seen as being kind of too pushy, uh, too commanding by some of these women. Um, she was certainly seen as an outsider. Um, and so she had this kind of dual negotiation, not only with the larger uh, political environment, which was very contested and difficult for suffrage, but also internally amongst the, you know, the different women uh, involved in the suffrage movement. And I think that that, you know, challenging her both on the kind of intellectual and political level and on the interpersonal uh, level and organizational level taught her important lessons that she would later apply um, as she would confront, you know, some similar uh, uh, multi-level conflict in all of the movements that she uh, would subsequently be involved with. That opinion of, of, of other women, that she was too pushy, that she was too urban. I mean, from what you've read, have you seen that that gave her some crisis of confidence? How did she, how did she deal with it? Essentially, she was able to, you know, kind of work through that because um, she was a very charismatic person and a very, had a very strong intellect and a very clear commitment to what she was doing. Most of the people, though not all, that she worked with closely came to love her. Um, and she stayed in contact with them uh, later in her life, long after she left Wisconsin. The power of her, of her character, the power of her personal charisma, and the fact that whatever differences in style people might have seen, no one seems to have doubted her commitment to the cause. She published the Liberator magazine with her brother, Max Eastman. Um, Tell me about the Liberator magazine, about her relationship with her brother, about that whole scene in which she was a really big figure. Um, Max and Crystal Eastman were very, very close friends their entire lives. Um, One of her closest correspondents all of her life uh, was Max. In fact, one of the methodological challenges I have with the biography um, is that uh, she had been such a close correspondent, sometimes, you know, letters uh, two or three times a day at certain periods of her early life. Um, and they came to work together quite closely in New York. They both worked together in Greenwich Village on different projects. And when they came to work together, of course, they wrote fewer letters to each other. Um, and so, I, you know, as a, as a biographer, it's, you know, it's something of an issue that they were so close. Um, uh, but I don't have records for the time that they spent working side by side because, of course, they were having conversations. They were having dinners. They were having lunches. They were seeing each other uh, in person, and so they didn't need to write down their interactions, their thoughts, um, their ideas, uh, and send them in the form of letters. At any rate, they were very, very close and worked together um, uh, on a number of different projects throughout their lives. Um, but the main project that they worked together was the Liberator magazine. They called it the Journal of Revolutionary Progress. Um, the Liberator spawned really the careers or helped to promote the careers of some of the most important writers um, of the post-war uh, American left. Um, some of the writers that the, the Liberator published included uh, Helen Keller, who few Americans realized was, uh, was, was quite a, a radical uh, in her politics. Uh, Dorothy Day uh, got her start uh, there. It was an important magazine in promoting and helping to evolve um, a kind of left politics um, in the post-war period. Uh, Crystal also was an investigative journalist for the Liberator magazine, and she was the first uh, American journalist to cover communist movement in, in Hungary. And one of the things that interests me about it is she was uneasy about it, um, and she wrote some of that uneasiness, particularly about the violence um, that she observed. There was some very violent, bloody activity in that revolution. At the time, Americans only really had access to an understanding of revolutionary movements through John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the World. That was also published in 1919. John Reed was a contributor, of course, to the masses and an important left-wing figure and, and a friend of Crystal and Max Eastman's. 
But that book really, to my reading anyway, kind of whitewashes some of the, the suffering, some of the bloodshed. It really celebrates the revolution without looking at some of the local particularities that uh, occurred. Crystal's coverage, on the other hand, takes on the price that is paid for what she sees as positive movements in, in terms of the collective ownership of property. And it's that ambivalence, it's that honesty, it's that candor, it's that willingness to confront you know, the conflicts within social change, even social change that she very much believed in. You know, that, I think, distinguishes her voice. She was not afraid to confront these kinds of conflicts, and she tried to understand them, to make sense of them, and to reveal them to the public in a way that, you know, I just don't see as many other writers, uh, particularly those with a, you know, with a certain political agenda, uh, being willing to do. You know, if I were to open up The Liberator in 1919, um, you've said the level of engagement was really high. Can, can you contrast what you'd get in The Liberator to what you'd get in an average political magazine today? Oh, boy. Um, that big of a difference, huh? Yeah, well, there is. Partly it was less commercial. The Liberator, it had a few advertisements, but most of them were from um, politically allied uh, organizations and, and bookstores and things. So there was much, much less of a commercial voice. And in fact, that was part of the editorial policy. Crystal already saw the problem of uh, the commercial establishment, uh, the problem of um, a kind of capitalist foundation for a free press. And, and back then, were, were readers more willing to engage with really eat-your-vegetables, leafy green policy pieces and very in- intense reportage? You know, I would think so. Um, and, you know, my personal opinion is yes. In general, um, the press at this time, certainly the whole, you know, progressive press uh, did take on policy issues, felt that citizens of this country should understand what the government is doing in some detail. The specifics of policy, the specifics of legislation, um, just as citizens of the country. And I I think that 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 is a difference. Readers at this time, I think at least some readers, read for more than mere entertainment. Um, Not that entertainment is such a bad thing. It's important to read for entertainment, too. But, um, you know, there was a a serious side to reading um, that certainly journals uh, like The the Liberator um, took advantage of and, and promoted and engaged. After the break, Professor Aronson on hunting down Crystal Eastman's FBI file. Surveillance, it seems, wasn't carried out so much by Big Brother, but by many Little Brothers. What, what were called volunteer spies, individual citizens, they followed people and wrote reports and knocked on people's doors. They did a lot of the legwork for what was then the, the nascent FBI. Coming up on Fordham Conversations.
You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson, today with Professor Amy Aronson, who's working on a biography of Crystal Eastman, the radical progressive of the early 20th century, who spent her life writing, campaigning, and organizing for fair treatment of laborers, equal rights for women, free speech for the country's most critical voices, and a real national commitment to peace backed by government policy. For as active as Crystal Eastman was, she's been a difficult person to, to research, uh, and, and she's she's been um, somewhat forgotten by by the traditional heavy base uh, narrative of, of American 20th century history. And yeah. you have several hypotheses to explain why that's the case. Can you tell me about those just a little bit? Well, one of the problems uh, that I've encountered, or one of the challenges, I won't say problems, one of the challenges I have encountered um, is the fact that her letters are, are not collected in any one place. Um, moreover, are not collected as her letters. Crystal Eastman was so involved in so many different organizations. She founded so many different organizations. She moved through um, a very dynamic and complex uh, career over her short life. Um, and as a consequence, I guess it's not surprising, but it's still a difficult, uh, a difficult problem, I guess, for a biographer, that her papers are scattered throughout the collections of other organizations and other people that she worked with. And so it's a real excavation act to try to get hold of the fragments of her life and fit her into not only the, the context of these other lives and these other organizations, but then to fit her, of course, into the larger sweep, the larger narrative in which, you know, I definitely see her fitting. In what you've read of Crystal Eastman's writings, do you get the sense that this was a woman who was thinking hard about her legacy? No, actually. I don't. Crystal saved very little from her own life. Most of the materials that I'm, I'm able to work with uh, were saved by her brother, Max Eastman, who, who saved uh, many of her letters. She didn't uh, leave behind a lot of personal material that she had saved. There isn't a sense from the way that she wrote and the few things that have survived from her own collection that she was thinking some biographer someday is going to want to try to write my story. She just uh, left behind uh, fragments of things, um, scrawls. Um, and honestly, that's one of the things that attracts me to it, too, is that I don't, I don't really think that she understood herself as being as important as I think she was, whether it's humility or um, some other quality that I'm still trying to get at as I grow to understand her better and better. But there's something about that that really appeals to me. I, in doing this project, I just she deserves it. Did her, she was writing up until she died, did her views ever seem to crystallize? Was she ever considered to be the old guard of the avant-garde? No, not that I've found so far. And my hypothesis at this point in the research would be the reason she never became the, the old guard is because she, she constantly evolved throughout her life. Her intellectual life really um, was about the kind of interconnections between all these different social movements with which she was involved. And as a consequence, she never got stale. You know, she never got old. She was always, there were always new challenges. There were always new conflicts to confront. In spite of the fact that she was always very, uh, uh, very much alive intellectually, she was kind of aged and weathered by the toll that you say her strong-mindedness took on uh, you, you, you've written her relationships, her finances, her hopes, and her health. 
I'm curious, especially about those last two, her hopes and her health. How did you see them to be affected by a lifetime of, of struggle? Her political struggles, she, you know, she was in sort of putting together various movements. She, she faced a lot of conflicts, which sometimes uh, forced her to uh, go it alone or to go against one group of political allies in pursuing a, a different agenda or the agenda of another group of political allies. One example would certainly be in the, um, in the presidential election of 1916. You know, there kind of was a split among progressives and feminists because uh, you had one candidate who was uh, pro-suffrage but also pro-war and one candidate who was anti-war but also anti-suffrage. And so, you know, for someone like Crystal, who is in 1916 particularly, but all of her life up to that point, both anti-war and pro-suffrage, you know, you're left in a position of choosing one or the other and sort of going against the friendships and also the politics of one constituency or the other. And that was a very difficult time for her. She ended up supporting Wilson, who at that time, you know, was promising a negotiated peace promoting U.S. neutrality and the idea that that would enable the United States to help bring a peaceful resolution, a resolution without victory for any country in Europe in World War I. And she ended up supporting Wilson. Well, most of the suffragists, the suffrage agenda to them was first. Um, and so they uh, supported Wilson's opponent. And, you know, this was a big problem for Crystal from some of her oldest, deepest, longest, most important friendships and most important political allies. Eventually, you know, she was sort of able to mend some of those wounds interpersonally, but I'm not sure yet what it meant for those long-term political alliances. Aggressive reformer that she was, Crystal Eastman, um, she has an FBI file. What has it been like to, to track that down and use it for your research? I've become convinced. I've made three trips to the National Archives uh, to look for a federal file. and I'm pretty convinced that there isn't a federal record. Um, but a lot of material was collected by, uh, the, local, by, the, by the New York uh, Bureau. Um, and I'm just beginning that work now to try to track down some of that material. There also was a fair amount of surveillance undertaken by these kind of what, what were called volunteer spies, um, these organizations um, of people, of individual citizens, who voluntarily worked with uh, the Justice Department. So like really, Minutemen. <laughs> yes, well, exactly. I mean, they followed people and wrote reports and sometimes interviewed people, knocked on people's doors. They did a lot of the legwork for what was then the, the nascent FBI. So I'm not sure yet where records of those organizations may be held. It feels very, very much like detective work. What about, um, what about the aspect that, that Crystal Eastman still has living relatives? You want to do this research project. Have you had to, to be careful about the way you approach them? Yes. I, you know, I think that all, all descendants of famous people or people who are, have biographies written about them you know, have some concern. It's their, it's their family. This is my first biography, but it feels to me like a very, a very intimate process. You know, I wanted to, to honor that and respect that when I got started um, by getting to know them a little bit personally. You know, having done so, I, I've had some really, you know, interesting, fruitful conversations with several of, of, of Crystal's grandchildren. Unfortunately, you know, Crystal uh, died very young. She died at the age of 47, and her own children were 11 and 7 at the time, you know, were, were young. Um, and so none of the grandchildren uh, knew her. Most of what I was able to talk to them about was, 
the myth of their grandmother, you know, what they knew, what, um, what they'd heard within the family um, about her. Does Crystal Eastman seem to be any different uh, from the point of view of family lore than, than she is from a historical perspective? Yes, I think that, you know, certainly, um, you know, to a child or within a family, um, someone's public work um, is, is important, but it's not as important as, you know, their being there to tuck you in at night. It's not as important uh, as, you know, to use a cliche, but, you know, dinner table conversations. Um, and so certainly, you know, f- the family perspective um, gives me some insight into what it costs to be a public person, especially when one is a woman. To be a public person means being out in public. Crystal, at the end of her life, when she was doing a lot of journalistic work, she was traveling all over the UK and, you know, covered a couple of things elsewhere in Europe. Well, when you have two young children and you're doing that public work, you're away from those children. And, you know, their experience is, my mother was away working. That dilemma and um, some of those issues are, you know, are very current, very contemporary. What does she have, what does Crystal Eastman have to teach women learning about her today? Maybe she has just as much to teach men. Maybe the most important thing, they can learn how to be their own person. She lived life on her own terms. She managed to, despite the fact that she had an unusual political agenda, that she was you know, seeking to build bridges among a wide variety of different movements, um, that she was on the cutting edge, really the avant-garde of so many public as well as private concerns. It's a, a, a scary, lonely place to be out there, you know, in such kind of uncharted waters in so many areas of life and so many areas of experience. She bumped into a lot of conflicts. She bumped into a lot of obstacles. And yet, you know, she managed to forge a life of her own. She had enormous integrity and, I think, enormous courage. She drew upon those resources in insisting upon, you know, living her life as herself, living by her own principles, living by what she thought uh, was right, standing up, speaking out, young women as well as young men. All of us really can, can learn from that example in what are very, very complex and trying times. Amy Aronson is a professor of journalism and media studies at Fordham University. That's it for Fordham Conversations. You can find archived shows on WFUV.org or subscribe to our podcast. Become a fan of our Facebook page, search WFUV's Fordham Conversations, or follow us on Twitter. We're registered as FOCON. That's F-O-C-O-N. Robin Shannon will be your host next week. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson. (laughs) ¶¶